0: I will please turn to the 14th chapter of Mark's Gospel. Mark chapter 14. What is the true purpose of the church in the world? What are we really here for? What are we supposed to be doing? Our answer to this question will go a long way in shaping the world's perception of the church and really of Christianity altogether. I believe the scripture teaches that the true purpose of the church in the world is to deliver the good news of eternal salvation by God's grace through Jesus Christ alone, apart from any work or any effort of our own whatsoever. This is part of the reason why Paul would describe the message of the cross, the gospel as pure foolishness to the world in first Corinthians chapter one, having people say that there's no way that's all it takes to have eternal salvation is to believe in this person Jesus Christ and what he did, but possibly something even more offensive about the gospel in today's world might be the question, in a world filled with suffering and disease and war and pain and sorrow and famine and abject poverty in many places, what is the practical use of a message that gives eternal life? Shouldn't God, if there is a God and He's allegedly good, have His priorities in better order? Aren't there more pressing needs in the world than a person's eternal soul? The fact that God's purpose for the church and the world is mainly to proclaim the gospel so that people would be saved does not mean that God is aloof. It does not mean God is unaware of the real issues that people have. Or They they at least perceive to be the most important things. It doesn't mean God doesn't care. It doesn't mean God doesn't see all of our suffering. The gospel gives eternal life beyond death, absolutely, but that's not all God is doing in salvation. God means to recreate the world through the triumph of Jesus Christ in a new heavens and a new earth. The reason there is so much suffering and death is because of sin. So if all the church was here to do was meet the physical needs of the world, that are real needs, and that the church is called by our Lord Jesus Christ to at least help alleviate whenever we can, but if that's all we were sent to do, it's like cough medicine for cancer. It deals with symptoms. It doesn't deal with the disease and so there would never be real healing and the issue causing all of the suffering and death in our world would never be sufficiently dealt with if the earth if the church was just another benevolent organization on planet earth the gospel is the message of salvation for sinners because we are fallen and separated from god that is the source of all the suffering in the world. That doesn't mean that all suffering that a person individually is going through is an immediate consequence of something they did. It could be, but not always. O- often it's, it's not the case at all. For example, that, you know, you're, you're, you're poor because God is judging you for doing this thing or not doing that thing. It's, it's not that. That's not what we mean when we say that. We're saying we've been dying since we fell in the Garden of Eden and so has all of creation. God cursed the world that you and I live in. And the world as you and I know it. It affects our minds, this curse. It affects ourselves. It affects our relationships, our economy, our governments, the systems and structures of authority and organization and civilization in our world. It affects everything. And all of these things, the suffering, are symptoms of our disease. But the gospel means that God has moved in time and space to break this curse and to end this death. This is the true reason that Jesus came, and this is why, when Jesus came, he came to die for us. Jesus stands at the center of history between sin and death to grant eternal life and salvation to all who come to him for mercy and to put an end forever to every aspect of the curse that is destroying us. Let me pray, and we'll look to the Word. Father, may You now, by Your sovereign grace, fix the minds of every person in this room and the eyes of every heart on Your Word and on Christ for these next moments. Father, let us not be distracted Please watch over my mind that what I say would be true and said in a way that doesn't offend because it's me. But if there is any offense, let it be because it is the truth spoken by a sinner like me. Lord, have your way in what is said and in what is heard and in how we speak and in how we hear. Jesus, be the center of this next moment. We ask in your name and for your sake, and ours in you. Amen. Let me read the first two verses to start of chapter 14. It was now two days before the Passover. This is just after, I think, two days after the Olivet Discourse, two days before the Passover in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him, Jesus, by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So as we enter chapter 14 in our study through Mark, we enter now the actual events that uh, the text has been preparing us for. That is the week of Jesus' passion. And when we say his passion, we don't mean a feeling of deep desire for something that he had. When we say passion in the sense of Jesus' passion, we mean the agony he will experience in his trials, And so we begin in chapter 14 in Bethany, where Jesus had been staying each night as he went in and out of Jerusalem during the day. It's the time of Passover. This is the most important feast in Old Testament Judaism as a whole. Uh, it commemorated God's deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt and his protection of them, while the angel of death destroyed the firstborn in Egypt. The people were instructed by God through Moses to sacrifice a lamb. Mark their doorposts on the top and on the sides with blood from this lamb. And the destroyer would pass over any house sprinkled with blood while judgment was visited on the Egyptians. It is no coincidence whatsoever that in the history of redemption, the Passover was when Jesus Christ, the true spotless lamb of God, would be offered up in Jerusalem to suffer and to die. Because by his blood, God's judgment would pass over his people once and for all so Jesus is back in Jerusalem two days before the Passover and the Feast of unleavened bread to get our, our bearings on kind of the time frame here the Passover was celebrated for an entire week while the Feast of unleavened bread took place over a long weekend God had instructed the Israelites uh, years earlier to celebrate this feast with bitter herbs to remind them of how bitter their time in Egypt was in slavery as well as to sacrifice a lamb in the afternoon consuming in the evening Exodus 12. Um, Numbers 9, he also commanded them to celebrate this feast by eating unleavened bread to commemorate the historic circumstances of this Passover. God had commanded the people to be ready to leave Egypt at a moment's notice. So they didn't even have time to let their bread rise. They had to eat, um, they had to eat unleavened bread in preparation for the Exodus. Sometimes in the New Testament, uh, when it mentions the Passover, it refers to that one day. Other times it refers to the entire week. And it's during this time that the Sanhedrin, who in this text are listed as the chief priests and scribes, were going to finally try to arrest Jesus, hash their plot to kill him. But since the crowds gathering in the city for the feast are so large, they would have to do it in secret, they'd have to do it by stealth, or there would be, as the text says, an uproar from the people. During this feast, uh nationalism, Uh, In Israel was at an all-time high, and there were people among the crowds that thought maybe Jesus was in fact this Messiah. And so if they hatched their plan in front of everybody to arrest him and kill him, it would have horrible consequences, or at least they thought it would. So, beloved, before we go any further, notice that. One of the key themes in the Gospel of Mark is the authority of Jesus versus the authority of the world, the authority of others. They had authority in Israel. The chief priests and the scribes, for all intents and purposes, underneath the banner of Rome, they had all the power in Israel, but it was dependent power. It was dependent authority. It was not independent like the authority of Jesus was. The authority the religious leaders had, think about this, was only that which the people gave to them. Remember, the synagogue was not God's instructions to Israel. The creation of the Pharisees and the scribes were not God's instruction to Israel, the people had done this in that 400 year period between what we know is the end of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew. They had done this. And so the authority they had, the people had given it to them. They had it because the people wanted them to have it. So rather than originating their authority from themselves because of who they were or because they were worthy of it, it actually derived their authority from the fear the people had of trying to please God through the law. That's how the chief priests and scribes got their power. The people were afraid of not pleasing God, of not doing all they needed to be His covenant people. And the religious leaders used that fear, we see it throughout the Gospels, as leverage, and it gave them power over the people. It is that kind of authority that was and still is so dangerous and deadly to people. Authority that is dependent on something else like fear or the desire people have to justify themselves or to appear righteous. When people have authority because people feel that way, it's deadly for people and people will always suffer. People will always fall through the cracks. The proof is all over here in America, all over the world. That is how people get used and abused by authority. When it's dependent, when it's derivative, But the authority of Jesus is unlike any authority in the world. It derives from who he is. It derives from the power and the authority and sufficiency and perfection of his word. Jesus needs nothing from us in order to hold his power. That makes him the only leader that can genuinely serve us. He's not only fully able, but fully free to serve us with no strings attached, demanding nothing in return. Nothing we give to him makes him who he is. Unlike every other leader in the world with authority of any kind and in any structure. There's a reason it never works. So when we reject Jesus and when we reject his gospel, we give ourselves up to captivity, to slavery. To be led by those who don't serve us because they care for us. They don't serve us because they love us or can actually provide for us. But because our fear and our desire to justify ourselves gives them power over us. And so we use each other and the world is broken because of it. Jesus doesn't reign because we say he does. My proclamation of the gospel is not what makes the gospel true or not. He reigns because he reigns. And, beloved, he was exalted to that place by suffering as a human being for us. Not by avoiding it, but by suffering for us. Most people use their authority to avoid suffering. Jesus gave up his authority to take on the suffering that would redeem his people. One of the reasons these men in Mark's gospel hate Jesus so much is precisely because he threatens their authority by offering the message of the gospel. That's why they want to kill him, in essence. That's why they're so angry with him. They're uh, proclaiming that forgiveness of sins comes through Jesus by God's grace. That takes away all the power from the religious institution. It's, it's Salvation isn't earned over time by good behavior. Favor with God doesn't come about because you dot all the I's and cross all the T's. Well, then how are we going to have any power or influence or sway over the people? We have to shut this man up and kill him or we lose everything. It doesn't matter how good he is for people. It doesn't matter how much he serves people and loves people and provides for people. That's not why they're in power. You, if that's why they were in power to serve people, they'd be supporting him, not trying to kill him. The currency of these leaders was the fear of the people and their desire to become right with God by their own works. So they decided whether or not one was pleasing to God. It's all house money, right? We are owned by the people we work for in one way or another, but in salvation, Jesus came to do the work for us. The work that sets us free and strips power and influence from those who would demand we serve them. So he must die or he's going to ruin the racket, right? So that's one way to deal with Jesus that we find as we come into Mark 14. Get rid of him. Cut him out of our lives. Block him out of our ears. Stamp him out of our memories. We can mock him and plot against him and say he wasn't who he said he was. We can revile him and spit on him and hate him. But why? Why was Jesus treated this way? It would make sense if Hitler was treated this way. If they just went out and beat him to death and killed him. That would make sense. Right? But not Jesus. All Jesus did was serve people. That's all he did. Why is there so much effort in our world? And just think through it objectively with me if you can. Why is there so much effort in the world to protect religions like Islam, like Buddhism, other religions, but so much raw hatred of Christianity and of the church? And and listen, some of it's well-earned. Okay, let's be honest. Some of their critique and their hatred of us is well-earned because of our self-righteousness, because of our hypocrisy, no question. And tragically... In the name of Jesus, people have done and continue to do horrible things that bear zero resemblance to Jesus in the gospel. So yes, those are some of the reasons Christianity can be hated by a culture, by a society. But could it also be? So we need to be willing to admit that, to embrace that, right? We don't need to worry that that damages We, if we're preaching the message of the truth, we aren't preaching ourselves. So when it turns out that we aren't as righteous as we proclaim to be, it wouldn't be a shock to anybody if we were proclaiming the truth. But could it also be that Christianity is uniquely hated because deep down Jesus threatens the human desire to earn our own salvation through good behavior or through self-validation while other religions not only protect, but promote that possibility. Right? Take Islam, for example. You you at no point, according to the tenets of Islam, know that you're saved in their understanding that you have salvation, that you're justified before Allah. There's no provision for that. You have to live your life as well as you can, try as hard as you can, and when you die, if Allah decides, you can enter paradise or you can be rejected. Right? So, It's built to serve that innate desire we all have, even Christians still, to justify ourselves, to make ourselves righteous before God. Other religions were set up to serve that. That's how they got power. Maybe Jesus threatens because he puts an end to morality and self as the means of salvation. What if that's also part of the reason people hate him? And by so doing, or by so doing... Jesus takes power away from everyone, especially from those that would actually use our fear for their own advantages. That's on one side of Jesus. This morning in Mark 14, this morning in the world, malice and hatred for Him because of what He says, because He threatens the selfish power structures of humankind, all of them. We'll see what's on the other side of Jesus in Mark 14 and verses 10 and 11, but first... In between our hatred of Jesus and our fear of Him because of what He threatens, He stands in the middle here to give mercy. Look in verse 3. And while He was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as He was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over His head. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Now, I don't think this is the house of Simon the Pharisee. From the story of anointing we find in Luke's gospel, this is the house, as the text says, of Simon the leper, which means Simon is a former leper, or he would have been unclean and completely unable to have guests. So this man may be... One who was healed of his leprosy by Jesus, which is why Jesus has in his home. That's quite possible. And Jesus is reclining at table. He's one of the group. He's laying on his side with others around the table. Remember these tables, for the most part, for a a function like this, are about 6 to 12 inches off the ground. and So everybody kind of lays on their sides around it and eats and drinks and talks and enjoys their time together. An unnamed woman comes in with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. The text even says, very costly. Even the, um, you know, the translucent white bottle, probably this ointment was carried in, was very expensive. The oil it contained was worth more, the text says, than 300 denarii. We know from Mark, from the other Gospels, that one denarius is one day's wage for a, labor in this, a laborer in this culture. So the contents of this flask, worth 300, are basically almost... An entire year's salary in one little flask. This was deliberately lavish. And it was a huge breach of protocol in this culture. In this culture, ladies don't shoot the messenger, alright? A woman was only allowed to interrupt a meal if she was serving the meal. Okay? so. Not if she just wanted to visit or if she wanted to join in the conversation, she wouldn't have been welcome around the table. But this woman doesn't hesitate at all. Getting to Jesus is much more important to her than observing protocol. Right? There's a lesson there. I don't think this is Mary from John's account that is very similar to this one, but it's possible this woman has taken a cue from that story as it spread around and she wants to lavish what she has on Jesus. She had to get close to him. She had to express her love for him. She had to show him how much she valued him. She's not anointing him here as Messiah. Unbeknownst to her, Jesus reveals in verse 8, she's actually anointing him for burial. He's going to die soon. Jews did not embalm their dead. They covered a body with spices and ointments to cover the smell. For a time from decomposition, and this was not initially done for Jesus at his burial. Her love for Jesus drew her to him, and the pouring out of this lavish gift is something only she, this unnamed woman, is given the privilege to do in human history. That's another reason people might hate Jesus, because of who he recognizes and who he generally doesn't. Jesus does the grand and the cosmic in the middle of everyday life with common people. Not with the wise, not with the powerful, not with the money makers. For all history, an unnamed woman who interrupted a dinner party anointed the king of the universe for burial. Who was she? We don't know. We don't know her name. Well, the guests are indignant, to say the least, in verse 4. It starts inside, but it boils up comes out. She wasted the ointment in their eyes. Why? Why did she waste it in their eyes? Because it was so expensive. It's money. And there are more pressing issues in the world, obviously, than dumping all that money, anointing a man that you happen to think highly of. What about the poor? What about where else that money could have been used? This could be sold and used to meet those needs. Shouldn't Jesus, if he was a prophet, If he was sent from God, if he was benevolent, stop her before she wastes it and reorient her priorities. I appreciate the gesture, but listen, this is not a good use of that oil. There are more important things. No, there aren't. No, there aren't. Maybe this continues being done to Jesus in our day, the indignation of this crowd. Because there are, as we see, as we feel, more pressing concerns. So, we hear the message of salvation. That's great. Set that aside. Do works of service if you want to help, like feeding the poor. There's a whole wave sweeping over the American church right now that says meeting these physical needs in the world, often uh, nowadays labeled as social justice concerns, right? Way more important than just preaching the gospel. That's outdated. It doesn't help. It's not what people need. You're ignoring what is really ailing them. You're ignoring what they actually feel inside. They would say the purpose of the church is to bring the kingdom of the world through, or kingdom to the world through acts of service to other people. By addressing or trying to alleviate these issues. After all, as they would see it, the church has no message to speak. If it isn't meeting the real needs that people actually feel in the world. And listen, we could very easily list. We're involved in it in our own church here in Moundsville. With with, with Patrick, for example, we're, we're a part of helping an orphanage in Uganda. Churches do this. I'm not bragging. I'm saying churches do this sort of thing. We do help alleviate needs as we can, as God provides, as God makes us aware of them. But isn't this self-serving of Jesus to accept this gift? This is a year's salary. Isn't it a little prideful? Yeah. If he's lying about who he is. Jesus doesn't stop her. Neither does Jesus condemn her or agree with the crowd present that there actually was a better use for this ointment. Look at 6-9 through nine one more time. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? By the way, there has never been a greater defender of women in the world in history than Jesus Christ. Not even close. Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. I won't always be sitting at table with you. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. If we look at Jesus' whole ministry, it's clearly not His message that we shouldn't care for the poor or that we shouldn't ache over the real, genuine, physical, emotional, spiritual, social needs of the world that we should never try to help alleviate their suffering. That's never been the message of Jesus. That's not His point here. In fact, in a fallen world that is cursed, here's the reality, there will always be poor people to serve. Why? Think about what He's saying. Why will you always have the poor with you? Because in such a world, things like poverty will never go away. The world is too fallen, it's too cursed, and people are too evil. Poverty will always be a part of the world. There isn't a way to permanently eradicate it, or Jesus is a liar. So, why would the church make it its mission to eradicate poverty? I didn't say, why would the church not help alleviate poverty? Of course we should. But should we make it our goal to eradicate poverty, only if we want to make Jesus out to be a liar? This is not heaven. This is earth. It will never be perfect. It will never be right. It will never be whole. It will never be home. And it will never be heaven. It doesn't matter how pretty the drapes are. The church should be pouring all that it has over the head of Jesus. Because it is through Him alone that this world is. Can be saved. Listen, we can't heal the world of all its suffering. We can't. Only Jesus can do that. And He can. And one day He will. What we can do, what we are called to do, is help alleviate the suffering by serving others, but as only an expression of the gospel we preach. While we do these things, what we're saying is there is a Savior that is going to heal this world once and for all one day. Let us give you a preview in serving you, a demonstration of the fact that He cares for you by trying to alleviate your suffering, but not apart from this message. Right? No matter how well-intentioned it may be. And I, I, I don't, when I say these things about the I'm not saying that, Everybody that is trying to help is trying to help because they're evil and they have, you know, underlying desires to... to, I mean, that's that's part of the structure, but not every person that wants to help wants to help because of that. But no matter how well-intentioned, trying to heal the world is a power play. It's a power play. It's trying to set up this structure over that structure... And if you don't want to be a part of this structure, you can get out or you can be taken out, right? It's a power play. We don't have a choice. The only way you can get power in a world that's fallen is through force and coercion and manipulation and overbearing authority, overreaching authority. God gave authority. Authority is good, but we have corrupted it. Trying to heal the world depends on motivating by guilt. There's something wrong. That Why do they try to get us to feed the poor, to feed the hungry, which we should do, by showing us pictures of their suffering, which I'm not insulting. We need to feel it and see it or we won't want to help. Jesus actually says, you know what's out there. The poor are always there. There's always hungry people, always poor people. You do good to them whenever you want, whenever you can. Right, They're always going to be there. You don't have to wonder. You're not ever going to set up a system that's going to take that away. So if you think like that, you're going to hurt people. And you're not going to be able to fix all the suffering. It's going to make it worse. It motivates by guilt. It motivates by force. There's no mercy in it. There's no salvation. There's only coercion. And it capitalizes. It depends on the guilt that we feel to keep going, to remain. Why? Because we can't ever do enough. There is more than enough money in the world to make sure everybody has a full belly. And every child goes to sleep at night in the world, no matter where they are, full. And they don't. Why? Because, you know, well, because uh, all the structures are set up wrong. That's a But who set them up? Right? So if we want to help, what do we do? You're, you're much more likely, beloved, to help a starving person if you go where they are and work to feed them than you are to put money into the government. Right? I mean, surely we have to know that by now. But notice notice what he does here. If, if we set out to do something, to go on a mission, Jesus did not himself set out to do. Remember this. Jesus didn't heal everybody. Jesus didn't eradicate disease. Jesus didn't eradicate poverty. So either God knows what is best... And so he was addressing what we actually need to be helped, or it's on us. And look around. There are people hungry in Moundsville right now. Right now. There's, 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 there's kids at the high school that don't know where they're gonna to sleep tonight, literally. Right? If we set out to do this, we've tried. There are all kinds of systems in place and attempts to fix this. It's not working. If we try to do this, we're disagreeing with Jesus over what the world actually needs. More than anything. When our desire is to lavish our affection and attention on Jesus, though, He would say to those who would say we're out of touch with reality for being like that, leave them alone. There is never a wrong time to put all the focus and pour out all the resources on Jesus. There's never a wrong time to make him the priority, to make him the center. He's being anointed for burial by this woman because he's going to die for us. What she is doing is taking on the posture the world should take on before Jesus precisely because, listen, he's going to die for us. He's gonna die to heal all of this and to forgive all of our sin. What she is doing is recognition that what the world needs is a savior, not charity, right? Charity helps alleviate symptoms. Yes. And it's good. Yes. But it isn't healing the world. And Jesus is a savior for the world. Jesus isn't charity for the world. Jesus says we can help the poor whenever we want because they'll always be here. In fact, that's an invitation to do that. That's what he wants us to be doing. But you will not always have me. He says that to the people in the room in Jerusalem at that time, to his own disciples even. That, listen, when I'm sitting in the room, I am the priority. Right? Remember back early on in Mark. Why do your disciples not fast? Well, because I'm here. They should be partying because I'm here. When I go away, then it makes sense for them to fast and want me to return. But while I'm here, enjoy me while I'm sitting among you. And beloved, now that God has exalted him and given him all authority in heaven and on earth, the name that is above every name, he is in every room. Whether they want him there or not. So therefore, he is always the priority. No, don't stop helping the poor. No, that is not the message of the text. Don't stop loving the poor, caring for the poor. Remember, when you feel above them, they are physically what we all are spiritually before God, which may be part of the reason God is so bent on loving them to show us how he loves us. We just can't see because we wear name brands. Right? Right? Don't stop helping the poor ever, beloved. But don't forget that Jesus is in the, in the room. The world will not be saved by helping the poor. And that is a very good thing, and we want that done. The world will not be saved by ending racism, which will be a very good thing, and we should want that done. The world will not be saved by ending hunger, which is a very good thing, and we should want that done. The world will not be saved by the attempts at world peace. Do you know how you get peace? You kill your enemies. These are honorable ambitions and pursuits, beloved, to fight for these things. I agree with that. To provide for these things. But the world isn't going to be saved by them. The world will be saved by the death and resurrection and exaltation of Jesus Christ. So, really, if the time is short and the Titanic is going down, let everything be poured out over the head of Jesus. That he might be recognized for who he is in this world. We are incapable of healing the world. The harder we try, the more we mess it up. But by his blood, all will be made whole and all will be made right. So preach Jesus. And as you can, help the poor. And here's, here's the thing. If they were as passionate To help the poor as they appear to be here. Why are they at a party? Shouldn't... I mean, if it's on us to save the world, then we can't spare any money for parties. We can't take any time off. If we have to save the world, there's no breaks. There's no time off. Everything you buy beyond food and you know, basic shelter and clothing is is extreme and lavish and you need to feel guilty about it and do less or own less and on and on it goes. It's just another religion saving the world. If they really care about the poor, when do the poor not need help? There's poor people outside of Simon's house that were dying of starvation and disease. If we take on a mission other than the one Jesus gave, there's going to be no rest. Do we see that? It will always need to be done. There is no end in that. There's no break from trying to save the world when we try to do it. Precisely because we aren't sufficient to do it, so we have to keep trying. So what are we going to do for the world? What are you going to do if your heart aches for people, for the poor, for the hungry, right, for the lame, and on and on it goes. What are we going to do? Are we going to do what we believe will fix it, or are we going to trust Jesus? Are we going to pour out everything we have instead on Jesus? Now, some of the effects of that will be helping the poor, but in our minds, right? What are we going to do? What are we going to believe? Jesus is the only one who can save the world. We aren't Jesus. See, we're His body. We're His body. We aren't His heart. We aren't Him, right? We've put Him on. They scold her because they do see the value of ointment, not the value of Jesus. So whatever their reasoning was, their response is fixed on the value of that ointment. All our good works in the eyes of God are like filthy rags. All of them. They don't impress Him. They don't have the power to heal. We think they do. We we love to evaluate what we do. That, that, that's why we word things the way we do. Like now that we have social media, just this blaring speaker to the world about what we've done. So you hear things like this. Um, you know, I'm so thankful to have been able to help at the food shelter today. Really? You sure that's why you're posting that on social media? That you're thankful that you were able to help? Not that, hey, I was helping down at the food shelter today, just so you guys know. Right? We can't help it. That's part of the reason we get so indignant when Jesus walks in the room and all the attention goes to him. Because it's about us. Charity and kindness are Christian. They're Christ-like. They're good. Make no mistake. But a beautiful thing done for Jesus is better than every dime of charity. God says that the beautiful thing in this world are the feet of those who bring the good news of Jesus. Because the world is like it is because of sin. And Jesus forgives and makes whole. Jesus is not simply memorializing her actions in verse 9. It's not; He's instructing his disciples. Look at that again. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, well at this point, who's going to be doing the proclaiming? They are The disciples, whenever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. He takes the focus off of the act of service, doesn't he? And puts it on the proclamation of the gospel. Everything happens in the eyes of Jesus to serve the gospel. So he goes right from this pouring out of oil to the proclamation of the gospel. Jesus is telling his disciples, when you go out and proclaim to me what I have done, you proclaim what she has done to me. Why? What what did she do? She recognized that He was the Savior. Tell her story. That's why Mark doesn't give her a name. It isn't about her. There are no churches named after her. We don't know her name. It isn't about the one who gave the offering. It's about who she gave the offering to. We know... We know what she gave to Jesus. We don't know who she was. And beloved, notice this. Notice this in the middle of the story, by the way. This perfectly goes right with it. Jesus was focused on the one in front of him. He was focused on her. The one close enough for him to actually reach. Rather than overlooking her for the sake of a greater mission... Or the whole world. In that moment, he was talking about and focused on her. This is instructive because this is Jesus. Why isn't he floating over all the continents proclaiming with a divine microphone of some kind all of this and doing this? Because in the mind of Jesus, this thing he's proclaiming is viral. It's spread by contact. Right? Jesus is a virus that spreads by personal contact. We're not strong enough to bear the weight of the world. Right? You and I don't have to carry that burden. It will crush us. It will crush us. Stop trying to do that. You aren't strong enough to save your family. You aren't strong enough to save your work. You aren't strong enough to save Moundsville we aren't strong enough to save the world our our back and our shoulders are not strong enough to bear the weight of the world to bear the weight of the Ohio Valley much less the entire world so why don't we pour all we have over the head of Jesus why don't we anoint him as the center anoint him as the focus do you know what happens when we try to fix the whole world when we try to solve all of its problems we actually look over the person right in front of us that's not important enough that's not big enough that's not going to do enough work jesus focused on who was in front of him and it's jesus we look over our neighbor when when we want to save the world that that's surely god wants us to do something bigger than just be share the gospel with the person that lives beside us. We don't even like them. Their Christmas decorations were dumb. They were too bright. Right? They mowed a line in my grass. My property line is clearly right here. They mowed a line over here. Right? They're not, they're not what Jesus came for. Jesus came for the world. It sounds so noble, doesn't it? Who's in the world? Your neighbor. Your enemy. You, you are no more obligated to serve and love the person in Indonesia than you are the person beside you. And if that's who you want to serve, awesome. Go to Indonesia. Praise God. We need laborers in Indonesia. But you're not like not being Christian enough if, if you're like, I, I'm, I'm going to give my life to saving the guy across the street, to seeing the guy across the street from me get saved. Beloved, that's as noble as going across the ocean. Why? Because they both need Jesus. Don't look over your neighbor. Don't look over the people next door like they're not grand enough like that. That's just too simple. That what how could it be that what God wants me to do is go to work every day, pay the bills for my family, take care of my wife the best that I can take care of my kids the best that I can drive them to and from Little League. Go to, you know, help out at their school, um, go to church, you know, help out there where I can. Uh, and then you know, have my neighbors over for dinner every once in a while, get to know them, eventually be able to share the gospel with them. maybe how can that be beloved there 's nothing more beautiful than that, nothing right we We read the Bible like we 're all paul we 're not all Paul. Paul was writing to like everyday laborers, slaves and masters and People that dealt in tapestries for a living. That's who he's writing to. We're not even on 10 and 11 yet, are we? Let me go there real quick just to shut it down, okay? If we wanted proof of our condition, we have it in 10 and 11. Let me read it quickly. So after, after it's clear that this is who Jesus is, protecting this lady, loving the lady in front of him, Providing salvation because he's about to die. That's who Jesus is. Then you get, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. You're, you're going to betray this person? So the world finally does get a savior. What do we do to him? We kill him. Because we want to do it. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. Remember verse one this opportunity has knocked. And he sought an opportunity to to, to betray him. That is, give up his whereabouts when he's with his disciples later in the week in the garden. It's, it's, It's in one of the other anointing accounts that you find out Judas of the disciples was apparently the most perturbed that Jesus, you know, let this oil be poured out on him from time to time. And didn't give it to the poor. Why? Because Judas was so passionate about the poor? No. Because Judas used to take from the money bags that the disciples kept to help take care of the needs of Jesus. So if Jesus is going to be generating revenue, what good is he? Right? You, you got to stop talking like this. People are going to quit giving money. If you keep talking about this, you get, you got to stop. If you keep letting people pour out oil on you, you got to stop. Beloved ambition to use ambition to make ourselves righteous ambition that on the surface looks like it's benevolent and wants to help people. Beloved It all means to ignore Jesus. And the only name that matters in this world is Jesus. Between all the thorns of this world stands the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley. In the midst of all our sin and all our suffering, the weight and burden of the fall and trying to earn our salvation and work our way into God's good graces, there stands the Savior in the middle of it all, who says His yoke is easy and His burden is light. Jesus will not end poverty by improving the world's structures. He will end poverty by creating a new world where the sin that causes it won't exist. So if that's where we really want to get, take your oil and pour it on Jesus. Take the oil of your life, all that you are, all that you have, and pour it over his head. He deserves all our ointment, all our oil all that we have, all that we are, it's always beautiful to make Him the center of attention. Always. He's the only hope for all humankind. Come to Him. I'm talking to you now. Come to Him. To you who right now where you sit, reject the Lord Jesus. Lay down your hostility. Please. Lay it down. This is your savior. Set aside your doubt. Set aside your fear. Set aside your quest to validate yourself and make yourself righteous by what you do to gain the favor of God or whoever it is, lay it all aside. Lay it all aside. You're antichrist right now and you don't even realize it. You're telling God, "I don't want what you give to save me." Stop stop he can save he can save believer let go of the burden of thinking you have to do what only Jesus is capable of doing believe the gospel and because you do and since you know it's finished and Jesus has paid it all realize that now you are free to give everything to him By giving yourself to your neighbor and to our enemies. Not to earn our salvation, but because he has indeed provided it in full. Let our whole lives be oil on the head of Jesus. Come to him.